Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. And this week we have Rahul Ayer joining us from Stripe. He is currently the head of engineering for the terminal product at Stripe and also has worked at companies such as Airbnb and Facebook. Rahul, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jake. Yeah, of course. Arun and I have been extremely excited to have you on. Full disclosure for anyone listening, I work with Rahul very closely. Uh, he's my manager at Stripe. And so we have gotten to know each other very well uh, over the past year or so. And yeah, we're just we're super excited to have you on. Uh, and the way we the way we usually start the show is just to get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are as the engineering lead at Stripe? Yeah, first up, really excited to be on the show. Generally, my interests lie in kind of three areas in technomics. It's two of them. They're economics, tech, and history. And some of your episodes actually hit all three of them, like the antitrust one, for example. <laughs> so uh, big fan of the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'll do a brief sort of maybe overview of what led me here. I came to the US to do grad school. I got my master's at Carnegie Mellon, and I really wanted to get a PhD. But I had loans, so I went to industry to, to work at a company called NetApp in their research. About two years in... Kind of got disillusioned with the state of research, to be honest, and that's a long story. So mm-hmm. I basically said, okay, fine, let's go go build product. And at the time, Web 2.0 was this big thing. I had no idea what it was, uh, but I used Facebook a lot. And I was like, hey, if they give me a job, I'll take it. <laughs> that thankfully worked out. I spent the bulk of my time at Facebook. I worked on a couple of products at Facebook, smaller products, but the bulk of my time was spent on building what eventually became Facebook Messenger. It started as a combined messaging product and eventually became found its footing as Facebook Messenger. So I spent about three of my three and a half years building and scaling that that product. And then when Messenger had hit like a reasonable size, I was like, okay, what do I want to do next? As luck may have it, a friend of mine was starting a company building input devices for virtual reality. I knew nothing about that. So I was like, hey, he was like, we have hardware engineers, we have machine learning engineers. We need someone that can do like everything else but they have permanent <laughs> engineers as well so i was like okay sure so pull it together with the software please yes <laughs> yeah so they did like some exactly did some android a little bit of ios a bunch of backend stuff web stuff like doing like all of it it was a really good role because i got exposure to pretty much all parts like when i was building the protocol between the device and and an android and an android phone for example i got to work a lot with the firmware folks uh with the ML folks to basically take raw device or gesture data and convert it into sort of an action. Like you basically get a bunch of accelerometer, gyroscope, et cetera, readings. And you say, oh, okay, that, that means the person actually moved their hand from left to right and we approximate it's this many pixels across or whatever, right? So that was, that was a lot of fun. But we made some bets that didn't quite pan out that. So my stint there and the startup in general didn't do as well. So about eight months later, I was like, all right, fine, I need a real job to pay a mortgage. Um, <laughs> folks I had <laughs> folks I'd worked with at Airbnb, uh, sorry, at uh, Facebook had gone over to Airbnb and were saying good things. That worked out. And I was supposed to work on a bunch of stuff like search and pricing and stuff is how I got recruited. But the VP of engineering at the time was like, hey, we need a lot of help on infrastructure. We need to scale up our we need to scale up our engineering team and our infrastructure is nowhere near where it needs to be. You have a bunch of management experience, so why don't you come help us out with that? So it's like, all right, fine, I'll do this infrastructure thing. I know nothing about AWS, I'll learn, we'll figure it out. Did that, I thought I'll do it for two years. And blink of an eye was four years and like the team was in a better spot. I had a decent bench and everything. I was like, all right, fine, I need to go back. I want to go back to go 
to product and been, they've been beware for something years at that point. So I started looking internally as well as externally. There were a few places I was looking at. Generally, the thing that drives me is is primarily like products that I like a lot. When I was at the startup, as part of the everything else role, payments was one of the things that basically building a pre-order mm-hmm. website. So that's my first exposure to Stripe. And oh, so you use Stripe under the hood? Yeah, exactly. So, so cool. that's my first exposure to Stripe. I was like, okay, what Stripe up to is like payment processing. I heard really good things. Again, folks that I worked with at Facebook had and Airbnb actually had moved to Stripe, and uh, they were saying really good things. So I was like, okay, let's figure out what's going on. And and there was a really interesting thing here, which is when I was working at Airbnb and we were scaling up our infrastructure team, when I compared it to Facebook's infrastructure team, I saw what AWS was able to bring in terms of leverage. And it started dawning on me that like what Stripe was trying to do is bring that kind of similar AWS level leverage to payments. Right? And that was really, really, that, that really resonated with me. And, and that, in many ways is what brought me to Stripe. It almost it almost seems, and by the way, I, for those of you listening, I have not gone into this much detail with Rahul prior, so I'm really learning a lot here, which is um, at Stripe and on Terminal, specifically the product that you work on, I don't know if you want to bring us through what that product is, but it, it hits on all of your experiences so far. There's like hardware, firmware, dealing with that side of the business. There's production infrastructure. There's dealing with Stripe as like the back end and the thing that powers the, the payment system mm-hmm. for in-person commerce. And then there's the the sort of software that brings that all together on the product side of things. And so have you done any reflecting on that? And, and maybe you can bring us through how the terminal product aligns with all of those areas. Yeah, I have. And the short answer is the opportunity was incredibly lucky. Like when I was uh, talking to Stripe, the terminal opportunity was one of the things they were looking for. In fact, at the time, the BL for BL for terminal and the engineering and lead what's for the terminal, BL? business lead, which is like business a GM. Lead. Yeah. So those roles were going on in parallel. So I actually never really met my boss before I got hired. So uh, I got to spend, I, I was lucky enough to get to spend a bunch of time with the chief product officer at Stripe who was hiring for both roles at the time. So that was really good. Uh, in the end, like, I don't know, sometimes stars just align and, and the kind of somewhat random experiences that one has had across things just like perfectly aligned to get you the perfect role. So yeah, this is one of those. Yeah, that's awesome. And what, and this may be a spicy question, but what is your favorite role so far or maybe favorite company or just... Where where were you having the best time? This is a really hard one to answer. Like I think there, there's an element of the Stripe role that I really really like, which is like we just what we just touched upon, which is like I've had these very disparate experiences, and to be able to bring them together in a way that is meaningful to a company is is, is rare. And I, in that sense, the role at Stripe is pretty special to me. the The other role I would actually pick was would be would be Facebook, right? Like I think no particular product, but just getting, it was a kind of long shot for me. Honestly, there was like, I had no experience. I basically barely knew anything that would qualify as web development, pretty much a backend infrastructure, like a back, like an operating systems and like distributed systems person, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Facebook had a bunch of like, back in the day, they would have these things. Facebook quizzes, you would, if you solved them, they said they would give you an interview call. Solved a bunch of them. I don't know if it was the interview call or what, but a recruiter reached out mm. and it went really well. So that, that's always like, I think that, that's like my first exposure to, I'm going to call it valley culture, 
So that's all this like, mm. special and, and it, 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 like, in many ways. It was going from like research to valley culture, the startup culture. Facebook was still relatively small when I joined. It was like 300 and odd engineers, about 1,200 people or something total. Oh, so wow. it was small. Wow. Right. And that it was like super real small. valley culture. And uh, it was really, and it was still like the valley's kind of sort of coming out of, it's still 2010. So it had been a while since the dot-com bubble, but it was the time when like, Zynga and Facebook and 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 Yelp and all of these companies were like coming up really aggressively in the shadow of Google to some extent because yeah. all this and then and then everything you did basically got written up on TechCrunch. It was a, it was a very different time. So that point that that phase in my career in in, in the sense that I really consider that the start of my career, really. Mm. And so that that's special. But but yeah, in terms of if you actually push me and ask me. A particular engineering role I, I i think this one because it's i i understand how lucky i am to have this role where all these device mm. experiences actually come together uh there's there's three things that stick out to me in this story number one when you say that we were just coming out it still felt like the value is coming out of the dot-com bust of, of 2000 if you look at the nasdaq it actually didn't it still hadn't recovered to those pre-bubble levels even in 2010 it actually took a while longer for that to happen. So you're absolutely right. That feeling you had is actually maybe more correct than uh, than you know. Um, the second thing is, and I think we've all seen this. A lot of your stories, like when you when you when you start a job, start with I didn't know anything about X Y Z, and I yeah. went and learned and did that right. <laughs> And and I think that there's this bias towards experience. If you want to go, why don't we go find somebody who's a payments expert to go to go work on payments? Do you want that, or do do you want a person who's really smart who's going to figure it out and probably get may, may even sort of like exceed where an experienced person is? I don't know what the answer is, but I do. Hearing that in your story brings that question. <laughs> I think to we're now. getting dangerously close to how I got into Stripe. Continue <laughs> past that for right now. What's the third thing? <laughs> Is uh, it's all fun and games until someone's got to build the infra. You see these engineers, they, they, they love, especially like, you know, especially the R&D guys. They always love cooking up new stuff, all this other stuff. And does it work at scale? I don't know, but it works on my machine. That's all I needed to do, right? And then you have to have a couple conversations. Does it work at scale? Lap- we, I don't we call know. that laptop programming right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, those are the three things that stick out to me in that story. I think there's a story. Well, number two, it feels like I touched on something that I think we should dive into. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, again, right? I think so. I would call it a bias and, and because I think it is at some level. Like if I can get talent and experience, obviously, right? Like any given day as yeah. a hiring manager, that's what I want. If I were to trade, I do think I have a bias towards talent. And then there's a kind of reason for that. Part of it probably stems kind of from the company that work. Like, so Facebook was relatively small. Like I mentioned, when I joined, Airbnb was smaller. Airbnb's engineering team was like 120 at the time. And like all of Facebook, all of Airbnb was about 1200 and Airbnb was larger as a company because uh, customer support is a larger mm-hmm. function at yep. uh, a company like Airbnb than at Facebook. And in many ways, these companies are thinking of ways of, and I'm trying to a large extent, right? Uh, ways of doing things that are different. They're disrupting certain spaces in a, in a certain degree of like naivete is, is probably beneficial. Probably not too much, but like a certain degree of naivete is like, beneficial in my opinion where you it enables a certain degree of like first principles thinking whereas like 
people's experience around are like okay this is the way the industry does it and 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 you you can result you can end up with interesting things from that but my slight biases and and from my perspective i think i've been pretty lucky people have been I mean, pretty much every major job has been people taking some degree of a bet on me and i'm hugely appreciative of that and i recognize that so yeah yeah i i like that point around if you don't know the system it's easier to change the system which i think is something that we see a lot of times bring someone in who has some experience that may be somewhat related but not necessarily in that space and you, you might find some some pretty amazing innovation to come from that i i did have a, another point to bring out of, of your story you keep saying valley culture valley culture valley culture i'm curious as to if you had to describe that and really let our audience understand what that means how would you do that? again that would sound just old <laughs> I think it's evolved over oh, time. I don't, no, I don't no. think there's... I remember I in think... 2012 when it was like raining cash from the sky on all of these startups. So yeah, I think about all these all these other companies that like don't exist anymore, right? It was what is the time. difference between 2012 and 2021? Ooh, that's a good point. Maybe more focused money and more venture capital firms? Yeah, I still think it's raining cash from the sky. <laughs> yeah, I think when, when I... And a lot of this stuff has changed, and some of the the, the honestly like, well, honestly, say oh, the worst elements have been, have, I won't say gone, but have reduced significantly for good and, and for good reason. And I'm thankful for that. But generally, when I say valley culture, it's this culture of like hustle, build an MVP, put it out there, see what people think, iterate, keep going, and and it's it's that. It's not like the previous. Uh, so I had the again when I went from NetApp to to uh, Facebook, I went from a very '90s company to what in the to a Web 2.0 as it was called. Like here, I'm, like, yeah. Let's see how many terms I can drop that like really date myself. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so it, it was uh, at NetApp, for example, it was a very structured. Okay. The engineering team codes. They go for six months or something. They say very strict. Okay, then QA picks it up, and then QA does uh, QA does a bunch of stuff, and then mm -hmm. okay, then they kind of release and everything like and everything people wrote would take eighteen months to like get out there, right? Value. And there's this, yeah, this, yeah exactly. There's this this valley culture of okay, let's try something, let's do it quickly. Is it working? Is it like run A/B tests? Is it working? Great, let's build on it. If not, cut it, move on. Right. The yeah. first couple of products, uh, the first product I worked on at Facebook was called Facebook Questions, which was Facebook trying to take on Quora. It you haven't heard of it because it obviously went nowhere. But like six yeah. months in, we were like, yeah, okay, this is not working. Cut it. Let's go find the next thing. Right. Yeah. And and then that sort of culture of like, how can we quickly iterate, add value, build meaningful products? I think it's what I was going for when I meant value culture. And with it came sort of this measure everything. If there's data to be collected, it will be collected, which is we're seeing the maybe potential downside of that in the last just basically strip mining data at this point. Like like everyone collect everything, never forgets anything. It started off as a as a in a I'm gonna argue good spot and then as with everything. It has both sides, but but that it was my first exposure to that. Build something khaki, measure, measure everything, see if it's working. If it's working, build on what's working. Cut what's not working. No feature is sacred. No product is sacred, right? And and that, that's largely what I meant when I said value culture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me.
Would you describe the previous paradigm that you worked in? Is that would you describe that as waterfall? Waterfall yeah. agile specifically. Yeah, yeah. To be yes, I think the the closest thing it would come to would potentially be waterfall. But then there's like feedback loops again, where you kind of like QA finds a bunch of bugs, it goes back to dev, and so it's probably closest to to waterfall. Mm-hmm. One of the things that actually fundamentally changed with and, and with that model was is was is what started happening in the web was in those days you would actually either ship a physical appliance or you would ship ship software to a customer site and you had have basically very little control over it mm-hmm. so the cost of a bug was extremely high right if you had a bug and 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 customers like with NetApp like that with banks and stuff they would it was like pulling teeth to even get a core dump from them so a lot of the times engineers would actually go physically on site to have to debug it. And yeah. it was all overall a very costly process and 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 this took and it led to these kind of cycles and then eventually you add more and more process and it ossifies and so on and so forth. Whereas with web companies, especially when uh, a lot of it was server uh, server side, like the cost of a bug is relatively small. Somebody gets paged, the... they fix it, yep. they roll out a new release or they or they roll back yeah. the bug. Uh, and you can roll back easily, right? Push a button, yep. roll back. Yeah, it's funny. Um, mobile ch- mobile changed that a little bit, right? Yeah. Which I, I think is an interesting paradigm. I, I think the other thing that changed there too, and I, Rahul, I'd be curious to see your opinion on this too, especially from your you know production infra side of, of Airbnb, but more like there was a shift from QA teams as well to engineers basically test and deploy their own code in an automated fashion. Right? I uh-huh. think that that was a huge step function. And I remember going through that at LinkedIn like the mindset shift that you had to have for engineers to go, okay, cool. Like I'm not just writing code and a room to your point, oh, it works on my laptop. Let's just deploy it and just get feedback there. But that actually changed the way that we have built software. Yep, absolutely. I think in my mind, there are a few things that led to that. Like first going back to the cost of a bug. If the cost of a bug is low, a massive QA team is a harder investment to justify. But second, if you think about a lot of the companies that actually did this they were still pretty early they were finding either found product market fit or they were finding it and they were scaling pretty rapidly they were not like flush with cash building out a huge qa team so you want the most of every single person you have on your team kind of the the so second thing and the third thing again is going back to especially in the early kind of like the facebook's and the elsewhere was and i'm blanking on the term user-generated content that was uh, companies that were like working with user-generated content and and generally that that web tour you know nobody knew what would really stick so again going back like the amount of investment you want to put into this is as minimal as possible right yeah so i think those things inevitably lead to that sort of shift and you, you, you think qa teams come back as with as there are more SaaS companies and are like shipping more infrastructure you're seeing qa teams come back and and they're not entirely a dead concept right now as you see a lot of these infrastructure SaaS companies, the cost of a bug is like really high. Like the cost yeah. of a strike bug, for example, is is really high, right? Data breaks, <laughs> snowflake, yes. like like especially yeah. like AWS, like the cost of a bug is high. And you're starting to see QA right. teams come back. Yeah, absolutely. Has the tooling around that changed? So like you start thinking about like QA teams, have they gotten smarter? It can't just be like black box like testing anymore. I'm guessing, you know, there's you're having high unit test coverage. And and some other ways of isolating faults. What does that look like today? I think a few things have changed since the I mean, I worked at NetApp for three and a half years and was by no means an expert in that era of software development. But a few things have changed since then. 
First is definitely more automated testing now than there was uh, before because if engineers were going to basically be responsible for the quality of the software, they want to automate as much as possible. Um, you don't want to run a large number of manual tests. So that's a lot better. The frameworks around this are a lot better. The more modern, like for example, when in those days, C++ didn't have a unit testing framework. C++, I haven't looked at C++ 17 and beyond, but like there, until C++ 11, they, I, if I'm not mistaken, there is no unit testing framework that is native to the language. The best you had was Gtest, which is which was what Google built internally and then eventually open sourced. Whereas if you start looking at the Pythons, the Rubies, unit testing environments or, or unit testing frameworks are considered almost a requirement for someone to take your language seriously. So things, so that's one thing that's changed. Um, it's obviously changed a lot. Feature flags and and phase deploys are another thing that's changed a lot. Which earlier you would just take a software and kind of like ship it. But as things have moved more towards like the SaaS world, and so definitely enterprise software has taken a lot uh, of cues from consumer web. Those two in particular being things that allow you to react really, really quickly in the face of, of a bug. Yeah, and I, I think the, the cost of the bug point around enterprise software as well, like where Stripe are shipping SDKs, right? Those SDKs get picked up. Like that that alone and that sort of paradigm i'm really curious to see how that will shift right and the tooling will eventually follow to the point where you know hopefully our consumer devices and this sort of like i'd say layered cake of software that's getting built over time will probably start to write itself and maybe hopefully ebb its way back into the world where you're doing more frequent releases there's a little bit more control from from your side as the software deployment and and I even am starting to see a little bit of this. Even people that do ship SDKs, they will actually put in like fail safes inside their SDKs so that they can flip things on and off, so that they can deprecate things, so that they can work with their partners. But ultimately, I think that is going to be a much harder problem to solve than like Web 2.0, where you're just like, all right, cool. Everyone just refreshes the page and you're good to go. And yeah, I think that'll, that'll be interesting to, to see over time. I, I am curious uh, a little bit. This conversation has been awesome so far, like diving into some of these nitty gritty details on, on engineering. We have been talking a lot, Rahul, as well about some of the previous Techonomics episodes. And I know that there's a bunch of topics that, that we want to get into here. And I'm curious, you worked at Facebook and and I'm going to bring up this point first and we, we can dive into some of the other ones as well. But Arun and I had some conjecture in our previous episodes that we were talking about Messenger sort of, you know, at that time frame when you even mentioned it. First, it was on the right rail. Or, I mean, I'm sure there was other UIs as well, but it was on the right rail. It was like in Facebook.com. You sort of like had it all mashed into one, right? It was on the mobile app, et cetera. And then it like got rebranded and put into the separate application. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like where were we right in our conjecture and how did that journey end up for Facebook? Yeah, so Facebook actually at the start or at the time that you mentioned actually had two separate products that were entirely unrelated actually. There was chat, which was what you saw pop up in the bottom right, and then there was messaging, which is this weird emaily kind of thing, but not quite. It was uh more long form. And the first decision that was made was to take chat and they were entirely different systems, take chat, messaging, and email and combine them into one product. Right. And so Facebook at the time gave everyone at Facebook.com email email IDs. I don't know if you remember that. And that was the product. So that I was the product I joined. That. So that was the yeah. product I joined. Yeah. And eventually what we realized that the 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 conjecture that messaging on these platforms would eventually subsume email because email at the time was a mix between messages from people that you 
that you cared about and your bank in like random spam right like some some best buy subscription that you had or whatever you you gave your email address this one time to this one website that just kept sending you marketing email uh, and they were like let's take the meaningful conversations and take them out and let's reinvent the mailbox and create real time elements with it etc etc uh, turned out that was not where people were going and instead where people were going was mobile messaging for a variety of reasons and that led to the hard pivot towards messenger there was a company that facebook acquired at the time and that was so we pivoted and we built messenger uh messenger actually existed in two forms there was facebook messenger the app and there was messaging within the facebook app and you could use both of those and they were functionally equivalent but eventually this was a hugely controversial decision and and then people were uh, there was a lot of debate around this eventually the decision was made to kill the functionality in the main app and do mm-hmm. just uh messenger so when you hit the if you that. hit the button in the, if you hit the messaging deep link uh, icon it would just yeah basically yeah. just open up the messenger yeah. app and the and the the ultimate thing that like convinced people to be honest was the messenger to messenger network was much stronger than messenger mm-hmm. to facebook and there were a variety of theories for that but one of the things was that Facebook notifications was like a kitchen sink for almost everything Facebook wanted to tell you including messages so a lot of people turned off push notifications for that and that caused the network to suffer so messenger almost wanted this pure messaging thing where you had push notifications yeah. on all the time because mm-hmm. the real time nature causes the network to build upon itself etc so that was largely what led to that's what led to the the app being split out facebook when you see it at the time was actually pretty strong and and i remember we actually ran a few campaigns on feed to get people to get messenger feed was a huge vector back then so uh, that was the that was the big reason actually that we split it out nice just riding on the coattails of that then when facebook acquired whatsapp how do those sort of like play together in an ecosystem or do they if i don't know if you have any thoughts there if there was an internal take at the time that you can talk about but it's always been something that's been on my mind and it's been in some conversations jake and i have had as well this is so whatsapp got acquired months after i left facebook and this remains one of those i wish i was in the room when those discussions were being had kind of topic so i don't know but i can i can maybe without going into too much detail talk about what i know until uh, that point messenger was always incredibly strong in the us and it was a richer experience than whatsapp was at the time and still is actually but whatsapp had this in large parts of the world is incredibly viral growth especially in a lot of the developing world where where network connections weren't as good like whatsapp just blew messenger out of the water right and and at some point i think if i have to conjecture at some point there was a decision made that like it's a bridge too far and and these are parallel products that that should probably exist but yeah yeah i'm that, I, that's the part that i was not there I, I would have loved to be in those conversations. These are these are the fun conversations to have anyway, because Arun and I, we, we love the conjecture regardless. Uh, I, I think in this perspective, Instagram is also playing an interesting role here as well with Messenger. I mean, they consolidated essentially Instagram messaging with Messenger. That took quite some time. And finally, we're there. Like, I'm, I'm actually able now 
which for me is great. Like I'm not a big Facebook guy. So I actually don't use Facebook. I don't use Facebook Messenger. I don't, I'm not on any of the platforms except for, of course, they bought WhatsApp and, and Instagram over time. And so I, I do use those still. And so it's been really nice for me to message across all platforms from Instagram. We, we are starting to get into this encryption war. And I think that that's an interesting piece of this where there's battling between end-to-end -end encryption on WhatsApp, right? And understanding uh -huh. how that works. And then you have, uh -huh. you know, Messenger, which I, I'm not, I'm assuming does not have that. And uh -huh. then what, what was, I, I think that plays into the WhatsApp conversation really well, which is even if they did buy WhatsApp, right? Like it's a very different user base entirely. Uh -huh. And so how does that uh -huh. overlap, like from a product perspective work in, in your mind? I don't know if there's that much of an overlap. I don't know if there's that. I mean, there is an overlap in that, like they're both messaging products, but that's a fairly basic one. As for the end-to-end -end encryption stuff, if I have to like bet, I think they'll just bring that to everything. In the end, all of Facebook's messaging products will be end-to-end -end encrypted. There's a variety of benefits to that, to be honest. Uh, not just to the consumer, but to the company as well. So yeah, and, and, and as they try to unify the infrastructure, it almost makes no sense to have two separate infrastructures. Like it, it almost that makes no sense to have this, is it end-to-end -end encrypted switch? It just might just bite the bullet and do it across everything. Yeah, so I, I don't... Again, this goes back to like my part, like the conversations, what I would pay to be in those conversations. I think they're largely, as someone that uses both of those very actively, WhatsApp still like... Even back then, actually, uh, WhatsApp was is largely a group messaging product. Personal person messaging does happen, but there's like a big group messaging component to it. Like the most active WhatsApp group, I, I even remember... Back then, no one got the numbers, but like we knew even back then that group messaging was a big thing. But Messenger seems to be more person to person, and with the entire like portal ecosystem coming in, it's becoming yeah. more of like a. It's starting to edge more towards the iMessage FaceTime, or let me put it this way iMessage FaceTime, that ecosystem is starting to tread more into the mm -hmm. Messenger turf than necessarily the WhatsApp thing. Yeah. And then this is the part that I actually don't have a ton of exposure to, but anecdotally, I've heard that. WhatsApp as a medium of business is pretty big in, in many countries in the world. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. There's there's certain countries where actually there there are there are situations in countries where commerce is goes is so like common through WhatsApp that there are now like Shopify equivalents just for WhatsApp yeah uh type like storefronts out there there's a yc company i forgot the name of it that was that was recently doing that but super interesting and it's a super interesting take on commerce as americans we generally don't think of whatsapp as a shopping platform and i've scrolled through like storefronts that are on whatsapp and it's it's actually a pretty interesting shopping experience uh, i'm curious to see how this plays out over time I, yeah, there's a, also like the Instagram shopping experiences. I, oh, yeah. I, I have seen anecdote, anecdata, of course, here, uh, but I'm still going to talk about it, which is all of my friends have been like, oh, yeah, I just randomly bought that on Instagram. I'm like, holy oh, shit. No, no, that, that, no, no, I, I have bought stuff off of Instagram. Instagram, because <laughs> I, I believe they share back in. I am probably one of those people that doesn't actually mind the ads on either. They're extremely relevant. I have bought yes. stuff off of it. Right, yeah. so the ads are extremely relevant on both platforms are, are extremely relevant to me. So yeah, though Instagram commerce, yeah, that, that that makes sense to me. We have we have kitchen utensils that my wife has bought worth hundreds of dollars off Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so the conversion on that ad was amazing. Rahul, something that's really really interesting to us because of your experience at Airbnb is that Jake and I had a discussion. I think it was actually our first podcast on what actually makes a tech company. 
And Airbnb, we we sort of had some debates as to whether it's a tech company or not, given the fact that it has a really large like operational real world component. Uh And some of its its unit economics are not similar to what we've seen with other software companies. And I say that with no bias. My my resume's got Lyft and Uber on it, right? But any thoughts there? No, I actually, that was one of the things that actually drew me into the podcast, to be honest. I thought that was a really interesting discussion. It takes me back to like something like almost Facebook days, which is like, is Facebook a tech or is Facebook like a media, like a social media company, Mm -hmm. which is like a new industry that was being formed right and 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 i think you mentioned a couple of things in that episode which is you mentioned amazon which is like is amazon a tech company if you remove aws right they're largely logistics and operations are they a tech company i think it's really interesting so to me to me at least the definition has evolved over time like i think it started off as if you sold technology or a tech company it was fairly straightforward in like the 70s and 80s and part of the 90s like apple deck sun Microsoft, fairly straightforward. As the internet era started, even like some of the web vans and pets.coms and things like you could argue, even Amazon in the early days, you could argue were probably still tech companies. The definition that I'm trying to use here, like the, the definition kind of evolves, which is if tech is the thing that allows you to differentiate from the competition, then yeah, I would argue that like those early com- companies were still differentiators. Amazon versus Barnes and Noble or whatever, the tech was a key differentiator. You never like stopped out, etc. Like it was there and even in that era you kind of had to build up a data center and do everything there was like hard tech involved but as like a lot of these things started getting platform platformized and we started getting into sort of the web 2.0 era i think that line got a lot more blurry there are some places where you could argue that tech is still the differentiator but to be honest i'm my opinion is not that far from yours which is but i do think which is like yeah i mean are chipotle and starbucks like tech companies they have apps and that technically differentiate them. like you could the, the whole starbucks yeah. like order at home and pick or up dominoes like, dominoes or, or or Domino, is the example that you had as well yeah exactly yes. so i think the it, it's hard to pin down right now but i think the question is largely irrelevant to some extent and the important question i think is is, is the is the point that you folks made which is what kind of multiples do you can you apply to these companies and like everyone wants to be called a tech company because they automatically want like software multiples. Mm-hmm. That's the, the game that's going on. There was like, oh no, the whole like crypto thing for a while, like Kodak, uh, had yeah. a Kodak coin and just like uh, boost in their stock prices. So like enough of this like crazy stuff that happens. But yeah, I think the interesting thing now is is what, what are interesting multiples that you can apply. So I think I largely agree with, with your take that you had in the first podcast with the one edition that I think the question itself is largely irrelevant nowadays. It's just mm-hmm. tech is so pervasive. It's ubiquitous. Nowadays it's ubiquitous. Yeah. So, so you brought up Domino's, and there's <laughs> there's a fact I want to drop on you. I actually had to quickly just bring up the chart because I had to make sure I was right. But between 2009 and at least 2017, I haven't looked at like the charts going into 2021. Domino's has outperformed the following stocks: Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Netflix. <laughs> oh my god people they want, want pizza. to know where their pizza is at all times it's a, that it's domino's app prop. that domino's app apparently was a game changer <laughs> i think maybe there's an argument for defang oh man uh, i i actually would love to see it. it actually if anyone listening knows and maybe i can find this on the web but if you know what Domino's engineering team is like, or if they just outsource that. I would love to understand what that looks like internally. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah this is an open K 
casting call for a future Technomics episode. If you are on the Domino's tech team, we want to talk to you and have some mics involved. <laughs> so the the next one, so I, I like this. We're, we're going through some of our episodes here. One of the other episodes that we had and we talked about was antitrust. And I know, Rahul, this is something that you and I have talked about and Arun, you and I have talked about a lot. And I wanted to, to bring up that. And I, Rahul, I'm going to leave it open-ended because we, we talked a lot about antitrust, about Sherman Act, about who is implicated where and where it makes sense and where it doesn't. I would love to to hear your take just generally at the current state of where antitrust is with, we're looking at Google, Facebook, a few of these other companies, Apple, of course, with the App Store. Where do you where do you see it right now? And, and, and what is your opinion just on the general state? I mean, a lot of people, I think, right now compare it to the Gilded Age with the robber barons, and like they compare, like I know Zuckerberg and and Tim Cook and Bezos to like the Rockefellers and these and, <laughs> and uh, JP Morgans of the time. And yeah, no, those people are way more powerful. JP Morgan bailed out the United States. Like, yeah, Bezos has a lot of money, but I don't think he's bailing out the United States. So I'm sure, a lot of people would like him to, but <laughs> so but I think it was, a, it was it's a different thing. I think there was there's a great book. That I really enjoyed on this. It's called The Curse of Bigness. And it talks through a bit of the his it's by Tim Vu, who is an advisor to Biden right now. And and his it talks a bit about the history of antitrust. And his argument the large argument in the book is that we've lost the spirit of antitrust. It's pretty fascinating. The, the, he says that back in the day that the entire trust movement was so the the late 1800s, early 1900s, Darwin's theory of evolution was like very it was very top of mind for a lot of people, survival of the fittest. In many ways, trusts were seen as this efficient way, and it was almost Darwinian that this is how companies or corporations should evolve. And they started getting really big. And, and a large part of this was people were worried that individuals were like getting more powerful than the government or even the president. And basically, I mean, long story short, uh, a lot of these titans had paid off for President McKinley. And then he gets shot. And then apparently, rumor has it that when J.P. Morgan hears about this, he literally sits down and says, oh, this is very bad news. Oh. And and Roosevelt oh. is not happy about this at all and, and wants to change this. Right? Part of it is like Roosevelt is president and it doesn't want to be second fiddle to a bunch of like rich people. And, and, and then the Sherman Act starts coming back. And a big part of that was that these large trusts were actually a danger to uh, the republic, right, to the country and democracy. And eventually that kind of gets watered away by this group of folks called the Chicago School, right? And which then eventually leads us to our to our kind of like the, the generally accepted thing around, oh, if, if it doesn't cause consumer harm or if it is mm-hmm. causing consumer harm, then like if you're bringing up antitrust cases and stuff. And that was the state of the world for a while until until this scholar, Lena Khan, wrote in Harvard Law Review, I forget, but basically wrote about Amazon's antitrust paradox. Mm-hmm. And, and now she's uh, chair of the FTC, I think. So it's a really mm-hmm. interesting time. There are all these people that have both historical, historic, like someone that has a historical view of this as the as the advisor to the president, and someone that is saying that the current laws are not working or don't apply to current tech companies, basically on the FTC. This is a it's a really interesting time. And then you layer on that the fact that Facebook's antitrust case just got kicked out. That was that's how they played without Lena Khan. So. Um, <laughs> 
yeah, it's like going into play without LeBron. So, so I, I don't think that story is just done yet. But I think it's a very interesting time. Honestly, I don't know how this all shake out. I would be surprised if an Instagram or a WhatsApp or a YouTube or double click any of these got unlocked. I would be I genuinely surprised that. if that if that happens. But there is an interesting take which uh, a bunch of folks and I think I heard this first from this podcaster Brian McCullough, who's who does the Internet History Podcast. And the thing that he said is that while the Microsoft antitrust case didn't actually result in Microsoft being broken up, it had a very positive effect that it made Microsoft wary of basically any acquisitions and allowed like the Google, the Facebooks, that entire mm-hmm. era to kind of blossom. And this kind of like antitrust like influence shadow that we have right yeah. now might actually result in a in a similar thing and, and it might prevent it might prevent uh, a lot of the startups or from being gobbled up by the incumbents at the same time for them it also like we might actually see a larger number of failed companies because it removes an exit vector for these companies so i think that's going to be the larger effect so we're going to see i think clubhouse is a in a different time clubhouse would have been a very active target for a lot of these companies immediately wait wait but do you think that do you think that or do you think that the smart play is to wait till the COVID stuff like wears off and then acquire it in at a cheaper price? Either way, I, I don't think I, it's a good, it's a good, that, that's a good, it's a good point. But I would again be surprised if Clubhouse is going to have to figure out its own success. I mean, there's a different thing if it doesn't work out and gets bought in a fire sale. That's different. That, that's not what I'm going for. What I'm saying is like the odds of Clubhouse being gobbled up by one of the larger social networking companies seems small. As long as it's viewed as successful. If it's like basically declining and it, it, it's like, like a acquihire or a soft landing for A16Z, that's a different story. Yeah, I think that the uh, the thing with Clubhouse is they need to figure out their notifications. I had to delete the app. I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore, Jake. I didn't know I did the same. I did the same. Yeah. It was a very good growth strategy at the beginning when it was hot. Right. And then all of a sudden it just, it just bore wore me down to the point where I I couldn't even look at it anymore. I I do think that there's something interesting about this, this concept of don't fly too close to the sun, big companies. We're looking at you now with an antitrust lens and that really allowing them to, or allowing these other companies to to build out. The funny part is though, is I look at Microsoft and and Microsoft is a very interesting example where they like went through all this, this pain. And now they're huge. Their their market cap just exploded over two trillion. They're oh. basically in this world where they're not like the top dog in any one of these segments or industry segments, but they oh. have so many industry segments in a way that almost like Amazon is like trying to do the same thing, right? Where they can say very easily, "Hey, you know, we provide our our products and we are trying to compete," and and that sort of instead of going in one and just dominating the entire thing they dominate in a bunch of different areas and so i would argue that almost the antitrust thing may have made them stronger by them not even understanding or knowing it at the time where like now they were forced to diversify their portfolio into different areas that were going to be seen as not directly related to their current offering and so you saw the xbox right you saw azure bust out and try to compete with aws you saw uh hololens or sorry yeah what was the what's the i think that's the hololens yeah. yeah hololens yeah um yeah, yeah, they're, they're a VR offering. And so it's, it's a very interesting time where like now Microsoft is super strong, still is, right? And so how do you, how do you still allow the, the big companies to operate like that when in reality, like that is exactly what they're trying to get away from, right? 
I wonder this though, Jake, you say there's a lot of things you can say about Microsoft. Sometimes I genuinely wonder, was their lead in enterprise that large that they were able to fumble, fumble mobile essentially, and still like leverage their enterprise relationships and like their, their sort of their incumbent status for a lot of like enterprise backend and basically launch a comeback. But their, their mobile offerings are, are, are none, right? Yeah, of course they're, they're leveraging their big strength there as well, but like there are other areas of the business that are doing equally well, if not better, where they said, okay, cool. Like Azure is a very good example of this. Azure happened because they saw another competitor go, hey, we can actually just explode our infrastructure and make that productize available to anyone else. And I don't know, I, I, I agree that it probably kept them afloat for quite some time. And I think coming out of this, but I think their ability to diversify really is, is what kept them afloat today, not necessarily five years ago. If that makes sense. So Gates has publicly mentioned, right, that, that basically the antitrust case caused them to take the eye off the ball. And Gates himself, who was often seen as like the visionary for Microsoft with Bomber and the other executives being the more operational arm. And Gates was basically tied up for the better part of a decade on various antitrust stuff. And they totally dropped the ball on, on uh, first the web and then mobile. Interesting. The web was a, I didn't realize the web was something that they had considered to be like, and then, uh, essentially that's what led to it. And then basically, and there was a world in which uh, I remember when, when I moved here, a friends of mine who lived here explaining to me how big Microsoft actually was, he was like, Microsoft has more cash on hand than Google is worth. This was like circa 2004, right? And I was like, oh, wow, that is big. And, and there, there's a world in which a more concentrated web effort acquisitions in that area, et cetera would have probably been possible, but yeah. Or, or if nothing else, like a bigger, like with Internet Explorer and what was it called? IIS, whatever the web server was and that entire like development ecosystem around that could have yeah. developed into, it's what Netscape was trying to do, right? Netscape eventual, Netscape's eventual monetization strategy was selling web servers, not Netscape itself, right? But yeah, it was, so the web was the started, they basically were tied into that and then they lost mobile all together and then they really yeah. brought it together with the enterprise stuff but yeah i i suspect that lead in enterprise was large enough that and azure also serves a very different class of customer right like it, it isn't totally like you're does. starting a if you're it, it it has high degrees of intersection with that enterprise customer that's like if you're starting a point <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. go ahead Arun. or sorry uh rahul go ahead no i was gonna say like if you're starting a company today you don't your, your automatic choices like oh, i'm building on azure is in a is an unconventional choice. Let's just call it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd say for any new company, like from scratch, certainly. Cool. Arun, did you have another question or topic you wanted to get to? I guess, you know, there was a previous episode, an infamous episode with Kate Brennan, your, 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 <laughs> your colleague at Stripe. Uh, and I, I think you caught me on a point that I think I didn't articulate very well. Uh-huh. I think I made a comment that payments is really interesting because it's 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 less of a bank's a blank slate than working in self-driving because you have all this infrastructure that you have to tie into. And Jake was very quick. I guess you were very quick to tell Jake of your objections <laughs> to this. 
<laughs> and then he was very quick I'm to tell so, me. <laughs> I'm so excited about this right now. You have yeah. no idea. <laughs> Jake is probably Jake is probably sold off like bets on what's going to happen in this conversation already. <laughs> uh, we have some no. wagers. We have some wagers. Don't worry. Yeah, and yeah, I guess we we might as well have a chat. <laughs> uh, why did you start by like you said uh, you did not get up? So why did you restate your position? We can go. From there. Yeah. So what I had said, and I think I want to hear your point too, but I think I have an explanation that will let us come to an understanding understanding was that in payments you have all these legacy things that you have to interface with and it's that's where the core of the problem is is that you you have to you're building new tech and with that new tech you have to interface with a bunch of legacy things and that makes it really hard and i think the the counterpoint that you brought that that was as it was explained to me was true but in transportation you also have to like deal with this legacy infrastructure of roads and pedestrian crossings and all these other things. And yeah, I actually, I think, I think my initial comment to Jake right after that, once I had heard the, the assault on my opinions, we have um, some very engaged listeners. That, that's that is true. not a that bad is problem true. to have. That yes. is that is true. That is true. I, I, I actually, I actually really, uh, it made me rethink uh, the way I had sort of like thought about it. A little bit. And I think the, the what I was trying to sort of get at is for us, there is a the technology does not exist to make a self-driving car in today's world. And we'll hopefully get there in three, four, five years. And there is still today no car that I would get into on a closed track and fall asleep in, in the back seat and think I'd wake up fine. That would be like there's no way you could get me to fall asleep in a self-driving car in today's world on, on a closed track. And so we're still there at some level, right? And that's where that's what I was actually trying to get at at some level. But mm. I really didn't understand your point as well, which was, yeah, it's actually the same challenge in some ways, which is you have this legacy like transportation infrastructure that you still have to plug into. Yeah, and I think some of the, you obviously know more about space than I do, but like some of my friends and maybe self-driving who work in like who work at like way more crews have told me basically yeah. that like. They don't like the eighty. Uh, they they claim that the, the industry is like eighty percent there, but the remaining twenty percent is like this just like ridiculous yeah. long tail. And and my <laughs> if you want a hot take early on, is I think we will up further along Double if you could just like uh, if you could just redesign cities. Honestly, if, if I if someone told you like yep, you need to get self driving uh, self driving car to work, but you get to redesign the city to go with it, I think you'd be further along. The thing, Maybe. one of the things that like really you might um, not even choose self driving cars. <laughs> Fair. One of the things that like really sticks with me is is this this story about the Waymo cars in in Arizona, which initially people were like, oh, that's cool, but then everyone got frustrated with because they had to move from the city street onto a fifty mile an hour expressway on an unguarded left. So it turns green, they'd make an unguarded left. This thing was too this thing was too uh, cautious, obviously, and would hold up traffic, and and then people would cut around it. To get on because they were this was holding up traffic this car was holding up traffic and it just compounded on itself and i was like what if that was a guarded left turn? Like, this would not be a problem right so if you can take a lot of these long tail things and just chop them off they stop being problems it was the core of my uh, my thing yeah. obviously it changes if you wouldn't fall asleep on a close track okay then we we're even further away than i thought we were the thing i would say is this like the the the, the best way is like eight, we're 80 percent there we have 90 percent to go I think that that's the best way I can say, you know, I can state the, the the state of the AV industry. And I think certain applications like trucking will get there sooner. But in terms of like dense urban driving, all those other things, it is it, we're still we're still a while away. And, and then my point, I think maybe the more nuanced point of why I wouldn't fall asleep mm -hmm. on a car on a closed track is mm -hmm. um, 
nobody can nobody can explain to me what is safe. If you go to cruise, they'll say, yeah, our cars are yeah, yeah, it's safe. You go to you go to Waymo, they'll say our cars are safe. You, you go to any any self driving vendor, like yeah, our cars are safe. If you ask them what the definition of safety is, you'll get different explanations every single time. So there's no common framework for me to understand what what it means to fall asleep in that car, and and think I'm gonna everything's gonna go to plan. If you tell me, hey, look, it's it's ten thousand times safer than driving yourself, then yeah, then maybe maybe that that changes things, and this is how we prove that. We're still not there yet, and there's no there's no safety standard. People people may, may be like, well, self-driving employee won't fall asleep in one of his own cars. That's genuinely just because I believe that we need a common framework for safety. Does, that, uh, do, does L6 mean full self-driving plus falling asleep in the car, or is that... <laughs> L5, you can fall asleep in the car. Actually, L4, technically, but it's a shorter ride, probably. All right, um, all right, all right, fair. Did the industry we, not... At one point, they were, like... Uh, standardized or not, a lot of people would basically report interventions per ten thousand miles or thousand miles or whatever it is. It, it's is that a not horrible way. It, you okay. still have to file a report in California, at least mm -hmm. California, where you explain all your interventions, where they are, and why. But the thing is, the intervention number can be gamed so easily that it's really not a good mm. methodology because how do you normalize those miles? Like if you're driving dense city miles, that's very different mm. than driving highway mm. miles or driving on a track or driving a closed mm. loop and, and all those stuff. The interventions, they're, they're one proxy, and, and but they're not the best sort of uh, measure of safety uh, across companies, across operating oh. domains, things like that. Is that like an intervention per car? Does every car have to be reported, like the interventions per, per vehicle? Yeah, so in California, you have to file a report with every interv. It's public; you can look it up. But you have to, you have to basically for every time you intervene, you have to note it and note the reason why and where it was and all of that. I know. Is it common for the guest to ask the podcasters questions? Because Let's I have do one. it. We have yeah. no rules. <laughs> so I, I have to dig this up. But a few years ago, I was looking up the thing where in a majority of states, like thirty odd, if I remember correctly. The largest source of employment was trucking for people. Yeah. And so given technologies, tech and economics, then eventually, and, and, and I suspect, first I want to know how, how far out do you think this is where trucking starts becoming largely autonomous? And then, and then has, what happens? is a very good person to ask for this. Yeah. yeah, I would say you can go look at the filings that Aurora had for the SPAC. That should give you a pretty good idea as to as to what they're thinking. I'm gonna like elegantly move around that one a little bit, but uh, look, I I don't think that I don't think trucking's as far off as other applications. Is it a concern in terms of employment and things like that? the The answer is when you look at just the just the replacement. Yeah, of course that number is going to be like looming and kind of ominous. But if you look at technology as also a force for job creation. We don't, we don't, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the products that can now be made because we can, tro we can, we can, we can ship things cheaply. We don't talk about the, the maintenance jobs that are created. We don't talk about the software engineering jobs that are created. And eventually like, you know, a lot of the stuff that's done by engineers today will be done by technicians in the future and the jobs that that'll create. Right. So the, your concern, I understand the concern. I understand a lot of that, but I think Kathy Wood over at the ARC Fund, she's got this great white paper about the internet and how people were worried about job job replacement with the internet, but it turns out that the internet's actually created two jobs for every one it's replaced. So generally, I believe that technology is a force for job creation, and there there may be times where we, we, we might need to think about the pace of automation and things like that, but generally, I believe that the future is actually brighter with automation with these other things in there. Yeah. Uh, Aruna, sorry to interrupt, but I, I also, you, you didn't mention locomation and some of the other approaches that are also being taken to this as well, which is if we look at the short term, 
locomation is we had Jatin on i think i forget what podcast number that was uh, number nine out if you yeah number, <laughs> number nine perfect if you haven't uh taken a look already that their approach is basically hey let's get there more quickly and actually have uh, an individual driver have a lead truck and have that have the semi trucks behind that basically learn from that all right and, and continue to to foster so i i do actually see some immediate impact right kathy wood's paper fine but there's always this retraining of the workforce that needs to happen. So like, I don't, I'm not going to talk about like hard numbers, but like in general, whenever you have a shift like that, there's always going to be angst from obviously the people inside jobs and then inefficiencies that happen during the time of retraining for other positions. So like, I, I could see a lot of things happening in that, in that way in the immediate future. And I can give you an anecdote that's actually interesting, which is I get dropped off at the HEG office in San Francisco or in Pittsburgh and people, people very clearly knew where I worked and what I was doing. And the driver, I would say 30% of the time would ask me, hey, what's going to happen with my job? Or some variation of that question. And it's an uncomfortable position to be in at the end of your Uber ride. But, but you know, what I would, what I would basically tell them is, number one, if you, at, at, uh, I don't know what today's numbers are with COVID and things like that, but fairly recently, the number was that Uber and Lyft didn't account for even 1% of all the trips in this country. So even if we were even like developing self-driving, we would still need human drivers to scale out a network. And human beings on autonomous vehicles would probably exist, coexist for some period of time. Then if you think about what the, what the longer future is, I, I explained to them that the job they have now driving Lyft or Uber didn't exist 10 years ago in any meaningful way, right? There, there was technology that went forward and created this opportunity. And there will be other ones in the past, in the future that, that are created. And obviously, if you're doing something now, you, you want some certainty, you want to be able to do that forever in the future, it will cause some changes, it will cause some angst, it will cause some retraining. But I also do think this, I think that the, the broader question we need to answer is, how do, how do we reskill and retrain people and how do we educate people in the 21st century more than how do we, like, you know, what does this mean today Very in terms of, like, this number... This number of jobs is going to disappear because this is happening. I think that we need to really think about what is the what is the human capital investment that we need to be doing as a country, as localities, as you know, even members of our community in softening that change on people. Okay, um, I, uh, Rahul, do you have any rebuttal to that, or or should we move <laughs> no, no. on to the hot take soon? No, no, that makes yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think now is is actually a good time to to move on to the hot take. Do you wanna do you wanna take us away? I, I know I talked to Rahul about this a little bit, and I think it's probably better that you ask him. Okay, so uh, Rahul, we know you're an avid listener of the podcast and and have have a lot of opinions. Here's a here's a spicy hot take for you. What has been your favorite Techonomics episode to date? Oh, that's easy. It was the it was the one about synthetic data. That oh. was I, I really like parallel domain. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. It was always, it was something that I always wondered. And, and that, that episode was a combination of just educating me and answering a bunch of questions. Like one of the, one of the pieces that I really enjoyed in it was like, how do you know, like, how do you know that your synthetic data is, is as like mirrors reality, yeah. right? And is yeah. coming close in the way they measured that. No, that, that was a great episode. I really enjoyed that episode. No disrespect to all of your other episodes, but that was like, <laughs> I learned a ton. Like, Kevin that was will be like happy. A, Kevin will a be happy. highly information dense hour. And, and, and 
yeah, that was that was my favorite by far. Uh, they are they are they're an incredible company. Kevin's an incredible CEO and just an incredible like person to uh, to talk to. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone any anyone uh, I don't think there's any disrespect taken to any other episode when you say that. No, absolutely not. And then Rahul, I have one more follow up, which is not typical of a hot take, but that one that episode was one that you enjoyed. If you were a new listener coming into Techonomics, is there one that you think really sets someone up for an episode that they might they might catch on to? The answer may be the same. The antitrust one was good. I think it's a good sort of like, it, it, it's a good sort of flag bearer of the tech plus economics bent <laughs> of the broadcast, uh, of the podcast. So yeah, no, I, I, I think that one, again, biases towards my my interest as well. But I think that was that would be one I would recommend, like saying, hey, this is an interesting one. Why don't you listen to this one and, and see if, if, I, if I was to go to like a random person or like in my friend circle and say, hey, this is an interesting podcast. Why don't you listen to this one and then decide whether you want to listen to more? I would probably pick that one. Awesome. Very cool. Thanks well, thank for you coming so and hanging out with Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you for having me. This was, out this with was us. Fun. Yeah. And, and uh, I know uh, I, I joke, but I really appreciate whenever whenever Jake conveys any of your like your, your thoughts to me, I uh, first of all, I'm grateful that we have somebody like to say somebody but we have people uh who, who care enough to sort of like you know get opinionated about something and then also uh just generally how thoughtful your opinions are always uh, stuck out to me even though they were being relayed secondhand thanks for sharing them firsthand with us and uh, i'm sure this is the first of many conversations that uh you and i will have and also uh that i'm guessing this won't be your last time on oh i'd love to come back thank you Hey everyone, Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Techonomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.